In Our House Now podcast, an inquiry into Twin Peaks, The Return. I am one of your hosts, Josh Minton, and I am joined by the great John Thorne. And if you haven't listened to this podcast yet, this is a, a thematic review or deep dive into different elements of Twin Peaks, The Return. And John and I have chosen a few interesting themes uh, in the past. We did baggage first, and then we moved into memories. In the last episode, a phenomenal discussion about politics and how it relates to Twin Peaks. So, John, welcome. Good to be talking to you again. What is our theme for this week? Hey, Josh. It is great to talk to you again, too. Um, The theme this week is, well, in one word, it's talismans. Um, but I guess what you would say is that might be objects that we see in the narrative that are sort of power objects. And when we spoke about politics last time, we talked about um, the gun that uh, that fires into the Double R Diner and uh, guns in general as power objects. Uh, you know, objects that obviously have you know some power associated with them. And that got me thinking afterwards, wow, there's a lot of interesting objects in the narrative uh, that um, could be considered these talismans. They're unusual objects and they have, um, perhaps they have powers uh, or some function. And so I wanted to list them out and we did that. And I thought maybe we would just go through and talk about what they are and why they are. And, um, as I say almost every time, I'm not quite sure where we're going to go <laughs> with this, and we may kind of explore it uh, as we go and make, hopefully make some discoveries as we go. Um, so uh, that's it. That's the topic. Great. I think this is going to be a very interesting discussion. Just our, our kind of planning call beforehand has had me thinking for the past week about just the different elements of things we're going to discuss here. One of the... I guess aspects of talismans that came up very early on in our discussions was the functionality. So certain, certain of these power objects have very specific functions. And there were two in particular that we thought we would start off with because they're very rich. Um, So the first is the log. So tell me in your mind, what's the first, you know, few sentences in your, in your brain that comes up when you think about the log. Well, I think, you know, the log stands outside, and there's one other object we're going to talk about in just a second. The log stands outside of this idea of uh, just a simple object. Um, I think this was something you and I kind of discovered in our in our our, our, our first conversation before we recorded. <clears throat> it, it's kind of too um, simplistic to reduce the log to just this power object. I view the log as a character in and of itself. Um, there is some debate, obviously, it's not defined whether or not the log is, you know, is the embodiment of the log lady's um, deceased husband, his spirit lives in there, or whether or not it is its own unique entity. Uh, <clears throat> but it is a unique entity, for sure. It is an entity that, that um, while we, we, we can't hear it, the log lady can, and I think perhaps other people might be attuned to it. Um, uh, it, it, it does seem to exist in its own, its own realm. Uh, it, it is not just something that you, you know, has one simple function. It, it, it almost seems to have, um, it, it, again, as I said, it's its own character. It, it's, it wants certain things. It wants, it, you know, has desires, you could say, um, it wants to help. 
it wants to warn, um, it, it wants to advise. And so um, I guess it's the ultimate object and again, to call it an object, again, I think reduces it. You wouldn't call the log lady an object. You wouldn't call Gordon Cole an object, they're characters. And we see very little of the log uh, other than those few instances when the log lady is, is channeling it. But it does seem to um, be something more than um, just something you'd find in your pocket or on your desk. Mm. Would you say that the log is really the first kind of supernatural object that we come across in Twin Peaks? Period. Not even the return, but just in Twin Peaks. Um, <clears throat> hmm. I, I have to think back. I guess so. I mean, the log lady appears in the pilot, although the log itself at that point. <clears throat> is not um we don't know anything about it we know she carries a log and so when we first introduced to it we think it's some eccentric personality quirk of this woman that she carries this log around um, it's only later <clears throat> that we find out that what what on the surface might seem to be some sort of you know mental instability in this woman is in fact uh, uh, perhaps uh, a deeper uh, understanding of the universe and that the log is sort of exists in that border state between this world and another and it's it's the log lady's way of accessing that other world it it conveys information to her but it does more than just that i think it comforts her i think it um Again, I think it's it's a character. It would be interesting to to analyze it uh, in the narrative and see if it has an arc. I'm not sure it does, <laughs> but um, so I guess yeah. I mean, it really is. As I said, it stands above. It it it, it, it it's above the other quote unquote objects. <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting, after we talked about this last week, for some reason, I had the idea of if we could have substituted the log for a, a an iPhone in, in uh, Margaret's hand back in 1991, and, you know, she's just kind of staring at it and comes up with these messages, like, mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's the same for us now. We, we have our own logs, they're just little black mirrors that we stare at, and they give us answers, and they, they suggest things to us, and they make us happy, and they make us sad. <laughs> Um, so it's not all that crazy of a concept, right? Except that it would be in in the case of the iPhone, the iPhone itself was something that had its own um, agency. Agency, yeah, yeah, that's right. So you know, let's let's talk about the arc because you mentioned the log having arc, and I think it does. I think that together with Mark Frost's books and with the narrative that both from the original show and, and especially in the return that there is a beginning, a middle and, and, you know, hopefully an end for the log. Um, I think the beginning is related to Margaret's husband dying. Is that correct? Am I remembering that correct? Um, so we, we assume it's implied. I, it's implied. I mean, you can go outside of the main narrative to, to, I, I you know, I, I'm not sure about the log lady introductions, how much they, but I don't think it's ever explicitly said that the log lady's husband uh, is in that log. I don't think that's ever explicit. It's implied, and there's a you could make a great argument that it is, but I don't think it's for. I don't think we could say for sure. Do you? I mean, and I think he 
Well, I, I, I remember, remember learning he died in a fire, right, in the woods. And somehow I've always associated that that tree was present during that fire. It may have been, you know, something that was cut down after it. And, you know, the same idea of Josie going into a doorknob. It's not right. easier to think that her husband's spirit sure. could go into the log, right? Well, and ghost wood is a term that is used throughout. So the idea that there are spirits embodying the wood is a fundamental part of Twin Peaks. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, I do think it's one of the first supernatural elements. And the log was really consistent as a character, maybe arguably the most consistent character in Twin Peaks. Like it always did what you thought it did, right? Um, the ending is interesting to me. I think it was a missed opportunity not to have the log catch on fire at on the, in the episode of Margaret's death and just like spontaneously combust into flames. I think that would have been a really interesting way to end its arc. Uh, you know, that's interesting that you say that. I, I've thought about that, too, about what what happened to the log after the log lady died. I think fire might have been um, a tragic ending for the log, whereas the log lady herself doesn't really have a, a really a tragic ending. She, she's lived a long and, and good life. I think she, um, you know, she did good in the world and then she got old and unfortunately she passed away. Um, we're all, that's all going to happen to all of us. Um, so it's a natural thing. What happened to the log? One of the great, great mysteries of Twin Peaks. I don't think there's anything in the return that hints at, you know, what the, the fate of the log might've been, but I would like to imagine almost like, you know, like in Star Wars, you know, it fades away <laughs> and, uh, or yeah, I don't know. I mean, what, Lynch would have come up with some fantastic way to show. Maybe he might have animated, you know, something where the log implodes like we've seen things do in Twin Peaks and, and becomes its own kernel of gold or um, or it ends up not in the red room, but in the uh, mansion room with the firemen. I mean, we, it would have been fantastic to see. Um, and, and I don't think when we when we have a glimpse into that realm at the very end of part 17, I don't think the log is there. I, I, I mean, I, I, somebody would have pointed that out by now. But that seems to me the fate of the log would have been to, um, you know, transcend. Right, right. And I think it's interesting to think, like, Margaret wasn't an action character. <laughs> you know, the log lady wasn't out there pick, picking up trucks and throwing them around or, you know, not even the, to the agency that, that Cooper had action. Um, you know, she was a guide and the log was a tool or a partner for her to guide characters, right, towards the good. A partner, that's such a great, I mean, that's a great, obviously her husband was a partner. The log has become her new partner, whether it's her husband or something else uh um but yeah that's a great that's a great term i like that a lot well let's move on to the second and related i would say um object that has a function and um that's hawk's map yeah hawk's map to me um we only see it once so unlike the log and unlike other objects which we're going to talk about which we see multiple times we only see hawk's map one time but you know, I was I was writing about it recently, and it occurred to me, you know, just that scene where Hawk is describing the map to Frank Truman, and he says it's a living thing, and Frank Truman doesn't bat an eye. And I thought, well, of course he doesn't bat an eye. I mean, they they have been around the log lady for for decades and more, maybe you know, multiple decades, and um, the log 
maybe they dismiss the log as again an eccentric extension of the log lady, but I think some of those folks there in Twin Peaks understand that it probably is more than just this this object; that it is a living thing, and so it wouldn't doesn't really surprise me that Frank Truman would take all of that in stride. Hawk's map is a living thing, and so um, it seemed to me that maybe in some way that map and the log. Um, are I don't want to say related, you know, in the traditional sense, but there's a connection perhaps between them that they access information and guide certain people, uh, certain characters with the information they provide, and and the map seems to fit in that rare category of maybe even being a character into itself. It is a living thing. It is, yeah, and it seems like the map is uh, more of a moral almost spiritual map as opposed to a geographic map, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. I mean, the map, oh, there's so much more. It's mapping than just a physical space. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it's a fascinating object, and I would love to have seen more of that or, you know, just – but, you know, that's the beauty of Twin Peaks. You get a glimpse of these these things which are so rich and open to so many different ideas, and and then and then it's up to you and I to have a podcast to talk all about them um and still have no answers <laughs> and still well you know I, the map so the map to me is so much like the log because again it's 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 providing information it's really fascinating that as soon as um hawk um has conveyed the information that the map has presented to him the log lady calls and she knows exactly what's going on there's fire, says, there's fire where, where you're going, you're going. Yeah. it's as if the log is like oh you know the map is talking to hawk right now and you need to call him and um so i see a connection there and i see the map as being uh, i think the log may function exclusively for the log lady even though i you know as i said earlier there may be some debate about that um the map potentially could talk to other people if you are of the of the right open mind uh and hawk is there i wonder yeah i wonder if the log lady looked at the map she could read it too i would assume she carl rod might be able to read it what do you think people powered by the purifier i think i mean i've, I've really come to think of twin peaks the return as different characters being powered by those different colors of fire whether it's the black fire that's corrupted you know i think we see the woodsmen in part eight actually become corrupted you know when we first see them they don't have the black uh smoke you know induced oily faces but yet we see them become corrupted so that idea of going from this pure state into a corrupted dark and dirty one um mr c could probably not pick that map up and see anything that's of value right right and you wonder how much you would see like, i wonder if there's layers of what you could perceive so yeah like mr c might be just a blank piece of parchment right or or something very negative maybe a black blackened charred thing you know for him when he looks at it and andy for example after his visit to the fireman might look at it and 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 be able to see some simplistic you know information i don't mean to make andy simplistic but i'm just saying he hasn't he hasn't been able to journey as far yet as some of the other characters so he does sit with the fireman right exactly and after that he might be able to look at that map and get more out of it than he could before um, so, so yeah, I think you're right. Depending on, you know, who you are, you, you could find different levels of information from that map. 
you know, you, now that you say that about Andy, I think if we were to think of the log passing an ownership to another character, Andy would probably be at the top of that list at the end of the return, don't you think? You know, that's another great, you know, we were talking about the fate of the log, and we both, I think, I did anyway, assumed that the log was gone. But what if the log, yeah, finds another character to guide and to connect with? Um, Andy's, sure, a great example. I think Andy's got his partner in Lucy. So is there someone out there who needs a partner who, who um, you know, would the log would find? Carl Rod seems to me like a really great, uh, you know, great example of someone um, – Maybe Hawk. Hawk definitely is one of those characters. I have to think through. And he has the map, so he'd have the map and the log. <laughs> the map and it's the like log. And they'd fight the map and the log. They wouldn't get along. They'd <laughs> be like, you know, you go to your room. That's funny. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that's. I, I, I got. Uh, I'm, I'm on the spot right now, and as we talk, maybe I'll think of some other characters because I mean, the, the characters I'm thinking about are all are, you know a little older. Not Hawk, but Carl Rod. Um, even Betty Briggs has potential potentiality there. Um, but who would be a, like, I, I couldn't see the Mitchum brothers no. up and taking it with them. You know, it, no. it needs to be someone in twin peaks. That's, that's pure fire. Yeah. Um, Andy's a great, I could see Andy and, and Lucy together adopting the log. How great would that be? And, and, they, and they put it in their new room. They put it in their room. Yeah. That they, that they, yeah, the room that, that, uh, that Wally left to them. Yeah. I, I, for some reason, we got to stop because I'm already in my mind picturing they like, they put one of those fake fireplaces in there and Andy tries to turn it on and Lucy's like, no, no, not in front of the log. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For me now, I am going to always have in the back of my mind the potential that Andy and Lucy adopted the log and put it in their home. I just like that idea. It just seems so perfect. Uh, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna leave it there because I think it's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, so yeah that's, that's perfect. Well, let's move on to the next functional object that you know is actually highly functional in part or in the return or, or season three is the Great Northern Key. Yeah. So now I think we're getting outside. You know, we, we kind of passed by those two first objects, the log and the map. They are exclusive. They sit in their own category. And now we're talking about objects that you can hold in your hand or you can put in your pocket or you can put on your desk and objects that seem to be um, that not certainly not characters uh, that have a function. You know, what the, the key is a great example of it. The key is important. Cooper brings it with him from one realm to another. Um, it finds its way to Twin Peaks, he, back to Cooper and he finds it or he knows he needs it. And because it opens a door and um, and it is, it, it, you know, it, its function is to open to allow you to move from one realm to another. And so, um, you know, again, the question there would be and I know this is going to get back to sort of our general idea as we, we get to it a little later is could anyone else use that key to open that door in the Great Northern or is it just Cooper? Um, so, yeah. So, but but as far as Cooper's concerned, that is essential. That's a magic object that's going to open that door. Well, he literally carries it with him across. You know, however you want to think about that journey, he went from the red room into the purple power station into the Las Vegas house. Like that journey 
we assume that he carried that key with him when he lost his shoes, he lost his pen, you know, he lost all of these other trinkets. Why, why did he take that key with him through those? Right. It's a great question. And, but we're assuming he had it with him before he left. And there is a possibility that he generated it, um, that it's actually – well, I we're getting to our bigger theme here. I'm just going to do it. I mean, is, is, it a is it a reflection of Cooper's psyche, this key? Is it something that his mind needs to uh, – you know, he needs this key in order to complete his journey. And so the key really is something that he manifests when he reaches into his pocket um, uh, right there as – quote unquote, Dougie in the Dougie form. Um, it, did it really pass through? Because you're right, the pin, the FBI pin, which is in itself is its own unique object that he's wearing on his lapel does not pass through that portal nor do his shoes. However, his watch does. Um, uh, Cooper's wearing a watch and that watch is still on his wrist when he is on the other side. So some objects apparently could and some objects could or did not and so is the key with him beforehand i don't know so that's a question we don't know yeah we don't know that i i like the idea of the manifestation you know it, it's going to go to our overall theme here especially in relation to dougie jones but that idea of that being the very first you know element that that he manifests as a uh, as a reaction or as a defense mechanism almost uh, i really like that well maybe we should potentially jump to, well, I don't know, maybe you want to wait on Dougie for just a little bit because he loses the key so quickly. He has the key for all of what, 15 minutes or something. I mean, 15, maybe 15 within the narrative minutes, not just 15 of our watching minutes. I, I don't know how long he's in possession of that from coming out of that socket, but he loses it. Yeah. He loses it really quickly. Um, he, he doesn't have it now. And then the key, you could argue well, does the key have some agency, you know, like the ring in um, Lord of the Rings can sort of find its way from place to place? The ring seems to find its way to uh, Twin Peaks because uh, it's a crucial part of the quote unquote plan <laughs> that is put in place. And Cooper needs that ring. Um, but Cooper needs that ring. Uh, Cooper Dougie maybe does not. So that's, you know, that's something to talk about. <laughs> it's definitely something to talk about. And I, I think that, you know, the functional functionality of opening a door for me also put me in mind of these electrical sockets because it seems like the electrical sockets, especially in relation to Las Vegas, are indeed little portals or little doors. And Cooper seems sensitive to, or Dougie seems sensitive to that during, during the return. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a lot of thresholds in <clears throat> Twin Peaks from the original Twin Peaks, the idea of borders and, and um, thresholds and lines you cross or don't cross. That's a fundamental concept of Twin Peaks. I mean, right at the very beginning, Ronette Pulaski crossed over state lines, you know, and then so that's what brings Cooper in. What brings Cooper to Twin Peaks is the fact that someone crossed a threshold. And then you see just one time after another, Cooper in particular, crossing thresholds. Uh, and certainly in the return, he does so many times. It's, it, you know, you could list uh, a half a dozen or a dozen times that Cooper, that Cooper passes through portals and doors and 
borders. So um, certainly the sockets, without a doubt, are that. Yep. I mean, I could, yeah, doors are, are, could be their whole essay, I, I think, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Portals, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. For sure. Okay, well, for our purposes now, let's move into the next functional area, which is those elements that convey information. Um, puzzle tube. Mr. You know, Briggs's puzzle tube is the first thing we thought of. Yeah, uh, a major Briggs's puzzle tube seems to me to be a magic object, a power object. It, 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 um, <clears throat> It's this, and we we talked about this, and we never went and researched it, or I didn't. It, are those real, <laughs> real puzzle tubes? I don't think they are. Yeah, I I I, I told you I thought they were real, but that, isn't it fascinating though? Because it seems like that could be something that's real, like <laughs> something that uses vibration to lock. I've never heard of it, and I think in all this many years since the return, someone would have you know shown us pictures of it on eBay, and it's a real thing. I, I mean, it, it, it Showtime would have sold it, you know. Right, right, yeah, right. You would here's the puzzle to buy it with its own little Twin Peaks logo on it. Um, yeah, it's not a real object. It's something that Major Briggs somehow manufactured, <clears throat> and it is this it's seemingly solid object which actually makes a noise. And noise is always uh, sounds and whistles and hums. Uh, um, they certainly uh, imply uh, otherworldly powers to them. And, um, and of course, it, it has information. It contains a secret, uh, something crucial information inside it. And Bobby is uh, perhaps the only person who knows how to open it and is, is able to reveal the secrets within it and um and of course that sets in motion segments of the plot which are crucial so uh but it is it's 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 a unique talisman a unique power object that is in the narrative one of a great many i think you know one of the things that's really interesting about that puzzle tube to me is that it's it's not essentially you know the the actual mechanism of unlocking it for me, it's that the what unlocks that tube is Bobby's relationship with his father, and to to smuggle the secret inside of an object that has to be unlocked by you know love between two characters who aren't even in the same room anymore. I think that that is a powerful statement about what pure fired characters in Twin Peaks have as an advantage over those who are looking out for themselves and are kind of just falling in line to, to hurt the person next to them. And what a great idea that is. And this is one of those instances, Josh, where this just came into my mind, but could Bobby have opened that tube back in the old days, the original, you know, series? Probably not. Maybe you have to be of a certain, you know, a certain transcendent level, a uh, certain part, uh, place in your journey. And <clears throat> perhaps you could argue that Major Briggs knew that Bobby was going to be there. And he also needed Bobby to be there when he tells Bobby, you know, about his dream way back when, obviously they didn't know they were going to do what they did in the return, but it fits in so nicely because, um, Bobby probably couldn't have opened that tube unless Bobby had, moved to the good you know the good side and lived a good life and had um uh, you know bobby's a tragic character too and there's a lot to say about bobby and the pain that he carries with him uh, uh he's still trying to atone for so much but 
he is in the right place. He, you know, his mind is in the right place. And, um, yeah, I don't know if Bobby could have opened it if he hadn't gone through that 25 year journey and major Briggs perhaps knew that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think, you know, if we look at it from a meta level and in, in the return, you know, what, what is also unlocked in that episode and through that experience is this emotion of real true nostalgia for what came before, you know, you know I think we were all kind of struggling as we watched Twin Peaks to return for like, where, what happened to our Twin Peaks? Like what, <laughs> where's the old cherry pie donuts, the music, like all of that has been stripped away, but this that scene in the in Betty Briggs's house where you know ultimately she says your father saw this for you like that's a super emotional moment in the return and inside the viewer it unlocks what I would argue is that exact nostalgia that we had been looking for all the way up to that point in time and the show then builds from that you know until the conclusion Yes, and, and I love that scene, and I do want to make just a quick aside here. Uh, Charlotte Stewart's performance there really is great, and she brings um, Don Davis back, uh, the actor who was Garland Briggs in that scene. I mean, you really feel his presence there. Such a missed, uh, you know, from the fans' point of view, we miss that actor and obviously miss that character, but through not only the great performances of Dana Ashbrook and Charlotte Stewart, but the, you know, really the attentive writing of Lynch and Frost, they, you know, they bring that character to life again, even though we don't have the actor there to play him. It's uh, really remarkable. I think, um, you know, you feel it. Yeah. And it matters. It, again, it's, it's something that, you know, delivers and then we build upon that throughout the, the rest of, of the return after that moment. Um, super important. So another item that conveys information is Gordon Cole's earpiece, his scanning device, his hearing aid, as Albert calls it. Um, talk to me about what you think about when... when you know, we don't know a lot about... <clears throat> well, <clears throat> there's two items really we're talking about here. One is his um, his hearing aid, which we've seen for years you know the 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 sort of cigarette shaped uh device cigarette uh uh, carton shaped device that he's got on his jacket and then the hearing aid uh that goes to his ear to help him hear but he's also got another device that he uses that he uses to scan the room and uh i don't know what it is we don't see much of it but he you know Somehow it conveys to him the room is safe. And you could argue, well, it's just a spy gadget, you know, like James Bond has. You know, you, you can see if there's any bugs in the room. But with Gordon Cole, it's not it's always that simple. And and we know Lynch is interested in electricity. And so you've got these electronic objects that sort of literally um, attach themselves uh, in, in some respect to Cole. It's like he's found a way to tap into something – um, that, that's been constructed for him. These are not objects that, you know, fell into his hands. Maybe they were built in some way and they work for him and he can hear better, but does he really need them to hear? That's the question. You know, what, you know, what is that object that he uses to hear? Because we know Gordon Cole can hear. Um, and so does it, does it do the exact opposite? Does it keep things from him? <laughs> you know, does it? Well, they even 
they even highlight that he can hear, right? Because Albert says at that one moment when he asked him to go to Diane's house, he's like, ask, say please, you know? And you heard me. You, yeah, and he says, you heard me. There is an interesting um, scene, John, that I'd like to, to get your opinion on. It's part 14. It's like the first scene that we see in part 14 where, you know, basically Albert has told Tam- told Tammy about the the Washington case with Blue Rose and all that. And then Gordon enters with coffee and, ha- you know, shows two thumbs up. And then there's a squeegee man out. Yes. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that, that shrieking feedback basically just locks Gordon down and he can't function for a, a few moments. What are your thoughts on that scene? Oh yeah. Um, this gets a little outside of the whole power object uh, thing. I have thought about that scene. It's interesting because the window washer, there's more than one window in the room. I think it's a corner office and maybe the window washer's already done one of the windows, but the implication is he's just starting um, so if he's just starting, he didn't go any further. He didn't go to the other windows either. <laughs> you know, I mean, he did the one window and then he was gone. And so I guess for me, <clears throat> there's some overlap going on in these, in these later scenes where Cole is becoming more and more aware of Cooper's presence, either the real, if you want to say Cooper's a literal presence in the world in Las Vegas, um, or if you want to say that Cooper is, in my mind anyway, I, the way I like to look at it is that Cooper is an observing presence everywhere. He's, he's, he's there, and that Cooper may be trying to communicate with Cole. And that's how I interpret it as a very subjective and personal interpretation, but that, uh, that um, Cooper is sending us some sort of warning to Cole because it's right after that, if I'm not mistaken, that Diane comes into uh, the office. That's correct, yeah. Into the half sister. Yeah, and that's where that revelation comes in. I think <clears throat> I'm com- more comfortable, and again, it's just me. I'm more comfortable with the idea that it's some uh, warning or signal that's being sent to Cole from somewhere else. I would say Cooper. Maybe it's someone else, but uh, that's a deliberate scene. It's there for a purpose. It certainly alarms Cole. No one else seems to be, you know, really. I'm not even sure anyone else is even aware. I have to go back and look. It's been a while. I don't think they react. I, re- I really don't. Yeah. So, so to me, that whatever, a lot of weird things happen to Cole. The Laura Palmer um, image appears to him, and he hears he hears something. He can hear. I think he can hear Cooper's uh, hospital equipment from from afar he he's definitely in tune and you see this in other parts ascends in the vortex when he evaluates albert in part four he studies him and it's and there's a weird sound effect that's going on it's almost as if cole has some supernatural abilities or has the ability to access a supernatural realm uh and and read it to some extent. And he sort of evaluates Albert in that one scene and, and sort of Albert passes the test. And then Cole's like, okay, you're, you're okay. There's a lot of things like that that happen with Cole. And I think that he, he's one of those characters like Carl Rod and the log lady who sort of straddle, you know, at, you know the, this realm and another, he's a little more confused, but he's definitely aware. <clears throat> yeah, I, I agree. You know, 
I, I, I tend to look at the return as kind of this uh, dreamer waking up, you know, we, but I think I'm on the same page with you with this. And I always looked at that squeegee as kind of something from the subconscious calling the dreamer's attention, uh, very similar to how the, that scene you just described with Albert um, where he was scanning him as is like tinted in blue, you know, like what, what could, what could you do to wake up somebody in a dream to alert them that they need to pay attention to something? <laughs> like what could you do to call their attention to something? And I feel like Gordon is definitely an, an agency of, of the subconscious for the dreamer. Yeah, there, <clears throat> there's definitely more going on there. There's, there is um, information, let's just say, being conveyed. Whether Cole can make sense of it or not is, is, is interesting. But, you know, bringing this back to the objects, this made me think, you know, um, if we're talking about Cole's ability to access these other realms or to, you know, get uh, some information, um, the log lady and Carl Rod and Hawk, yeah, granted there's the log on the map, but they are in tune. Uh, they don't need these electronic devices. It sort of shows you sort of the, the strata of these different characters. It's someone like the log lady and Carl Rod are so far up the, the level of... <clears throat> of awareness that they don't need, they can kind of, I mean, Carl Rod sees the golden uh, soul of the boy, if you want to call it a soul, you know, go off into the, into the sky. He doesn't need uh, an, um, an object to help him see that. Gordon Cole needs these mechanical objects. It's sort of like he's, he's that level down there. He needs something to help him um, like a hearing aid. I mean, he needs this. Uh, he's defective in that way, and I, you know, that's a really poor way of, of saying it. But, um, but he can do it. He can do it if he's given these mechanical items, uh, and then he can, and then he can get there. Well, you know, Carl Rod had his whistle, right? He had um, his guitar. He had his CB radio. So he he did have you know objects that he had. I think the whistle is probably the most interesting of the three. <laughs> Yeah, the whistle was one of our objects to talk about. Uh, that that you know that long tube, he blows it, and the van comes rolling right up. And uh, you could say, well, it's not really a, a, a magic object or an object of power, but it's such a bizarre object. It's worth noting. I mean, he calls for help, and help came. He didn't exactly. He whistles, and the and the van is always on standby. I mean, it just comes right away, and uh, and and they go in, they get in, and you know off they go and so that whistle seems to have very specific function and i wonder you know is it is there something more to it and like we see in twin peaks so often it's it's unusual it's 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 kind of got an odd vibe to it literally and um it's just worth noting as a power object Right. Yeah. I mean, I thought when I saw that scene, like, you know, New York city, those guys who call cabs outside of hotels, they have whistles. Like it's a, it's the same exact object, same exact function. But when you take it out of the, the environment and put it into an environment that doesn't quite match its needs, that's when it gathers some interesting uh, power, I think. Yeah. I mean, it just it always makes me laugh to think about that. There's some driver sitting in the van on call 24 hours a day, probably, right? Waiting to hear that noise. <laughs> and then he steps on the gas and he's there. He's right there. Yeah, it's, it was a wonderful scene. It was a wonderful scene. Um, you know, but it's not, the whistle is not an object, you know, like 
Freddy's green glove, which is I would say is an object for protection and even and even damage and attack object. So it's a call for help object. It didn't prevent the boy from being killed. Carl Rod's whistle talking about now. Like it didn't prevent characters from being hurt. It didn't you know likely prevent Becky from being killed or whatever happened to her. Um, but you know there's also agencies of power that are um, damaging or even you know defensive and i think we should probably talk about freddie's glove for a few moments (laughs) uh yeah i mean you know again it's 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 an object that is held by one particular character and it has a function to it Uh, it certainly has a power function to it um i think it was designed exclusively to punch bob and um and so just in that respect it's a power object and it comes into play uh at the end of we all know um at the end of the story, I, I'm not quite sure, you know, how much there is to say about it, other than once again, um, there's an object that seems to be required to um, help a task, you know, achieve a task, uh, rather than just a character themselves. There's an object that's required, and in this case. To, to feed Bob, an object is required. It, it, in this specific case, it's this green glove. Yeah, and it's funny because that same episode of of where the fireman you know supposedly gave the glove to um, to Freddie as he's recalling to James is the same episode that Andy ascended to to engage with the fireman who sent him home with nothing more than instructions. Right. So if I'm taking the easiest path as a writer, why invent you know, Freddie altogether, why not just give Andy the green glove? And so there's a reason that you know, the fireman chooses another character that we've never heard of to be this agency of protection and damage to to Bob as opposed to like an Andy who could have easily just been sent home with a green glove on his hand. And, and from a writing perspective, it would have been the same. Yeah, I mean, obviously this gets into a larger idea of what is happening in Twin Peaks and of course no one can say for sure but um, I mean I hesitate to get too deep into this but the idea of you know is the green glove really necessary I mean or is the green glove really exist I mean you know yeah, obviously if you want to go down that road you can say well it's all subjective and we can't um, but um, well it does seem that Cooper can't hit Bob doesn't it seem like, like that to you in part 17 Oh, without a doubt, Cooper is a passive character in that. In in, I mean that's that's vitally important to the story is the fact that Cooper can take no action, and Cooper d- takes no action because I think Cooper essentially isn't really there. I mean he uh, he's there and he's not there. He's like uh, you know he's, he's essentially like Philip Jeffries in Firewalk with Me. Well, that's interesting because like even if he woke up in part sixteen he still wasn't able to to have the agency that he would like in, you know, season one, for example. Right. Yeah. I don't want to give too much away what I'm writing, but I would say arguably, and I may have said this in other podcasts, I don't think Cooper um, wakes up. <laughs> I mean, he goes, he, 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 you know, Dougie puts the fork in the socket and he goes out and um, yeah, we, I think we have talked about this, right? I mean, it's at that. Yeah. And it's at that point in my mind that Cooper, imposes himself on the narrative. Uh, he inserts himself in. He's sort of tired of waiting to physically wake up. And since he can't, you know, he, he pulls a Philip Jeffries and he, he shows up in the narrative, but he can't do anything. I mean, I mean, I guess he can drive a car, I guess, but 
he needs people to get him to where he needs to go. And once he gets there, he needs other people to carry out the task, which is of defeating Bob. He can't, he doesn't do anything. And he never even confronts the only thing he does is he takes the, he takes the ring off of, uh, off of Mr. C, but even that, you know, is sort of metaphoric. It's, it's something that's, it's sort of a a mental resolution that's happening there. Anyway, I don't want to go too far afield in that. That's perhaps another topic, but, but I think, I think in some ways, you know, Freddie represents the need and maybe, you know, if you want to go literal that the firemen and major Briggs were putting this plan together, they knew that Cooper wasn't going to be able to do anything. So they needed to have someone there who could uh, serve that function. And so they, they have found this, this, you know, this young guy who, who they maneuver into position like a chess piece, just as they've maneuvered all the other pieces in place, uh, NATO and, and Andy's function is to maneuver Lucy into play. I mean, they're all carefully. The Mitchum brothers, right? Exactly. Everybody's maneuvered into place so that the plan can be, uh, you know, come to fruition. Yeah. Okay. So well, anyway, let's, let's not dwell yeah. on that. That's a, that's a huge <laughs> okay. topic. I'm sure we can talk is. for hours just on that right. alone. But let's move into kind of the second category of of power objects, and these are the the ones that are more symbolic. So they're not necessarily functional. They're certainly not the map or, or the log. But I think of a of a story that Krishnamurti always told about this rock when he was a kid. He wanted to test out what it was like to worship something, and he picked this rock up off the beach, took it home, put it up on the mantle and every day he would sit in meditation and think about this rock and worship this rock as an element of the spirit of the divine and blah 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 blah. and he recalled this years later and he said i can assure you that after six months of doing that that was a holy object that was a very sacred object to me just by the amount of attention that i lavished on it and so if if we think about things like donuts, for example, in, in that aspect, you know, w- w- what are your thoughts on the power of donuts in, in Twin Peaks, the return? Uh, well, you know, I mean, that's, uh, that those objects have power outside of the narrative, right? I mean, those are for fans and for audience. Don't you think? I mean, we, we, we see them as representative of this world we wish we could go visit. And donuts are one of these great uh, items, just like coffee and cherry pie. And um, those are the symbols of Twin Peaks. And we give them perhaps, um, obviously, when we see a donut, I mean, to this day, when you see a donut, you think of Twin Peaks, right? I mean, I do. <laughs> but of course, I've immersed myself in it. But you, Absolutely. <clears throat> and you get, you get you go to these festivals, right. and that's one of the elements right. that they lay out for everyone. And it's free, generally, <laughs> included with the cost of your ticket. But the idea is everyone should be able to come and partake of this without a financial transaction happening directly. I feel like that's... Yeah. So, I mean, we, you know, we could we could... I mean, we could try to assign all kinds of strange meanings to donuts and say, well, there's circles and, you know, there's circular narrative. I am people have done that in essays. I've seen it. But donuts are just one of those great little artifacts of Twin Peaks uh, that we, the audience, um, you know, give it more meaning uh, outside of Twin Peaks. And that's a great thing. I mean, it's a great. Well, they certainly bring pleasure. You know, I, I think it's. There's not many people who've bitten into a donut and felt pain. (laughs) But I I specifically mentioned donuts first, John, because I wanted to separate it from the conversation about coffee and cherry pie, especially in in terms of the return, because those have very specific 
effects on Dougie and people around him. Uh, well, yeah, the, I mean, the cherry pie, um, obviously the cherry pie is a, a critical plot element at one point in the story. It saves his life. It saves his life. Um, and, you know, again, that gets into the whole idea of, you know, these other forces that are perhaps um, guiding Cooper or protecting Cooper or manipulating reality so that it goes a certain way. And they implant perhaps in, uh, I think it's Bradley Mitchum who has the dream about cherry pie. They implant that in his mind. Again, if you want to just go strictly in the sort of functional sense of analyzing the narrative and these same forces make sure that Cooper is holding a cherry pie. Philip Gerard beckons him into the coffee shop so that he can get it before he meets up with the Mitchum brothers. And then the cherry pie uh, is is this object that saves his life. Obviously, that's just within the narrative. And then outside of the narrative, as we're talking about donuts, I mean, cherry pie is this, you know, fundamental aspect of Twin Peaks that we all appreciate. So. Sure. What what is it Cooper says in the pilot about? I think he's talking to Diane on the recorder, and he says something about that cherry pile change your life, save your life. I think he says they got a cherry pie that'll kill you. I think that's what he said. <laughs> the cherry pie that'll kill you, and then later he says this must be where pies go where they die, when they die. So you know the idea of death connected to pie follows itself into the return to some extent in that the pie that's really interesting doesn't kill him the pie saves his life yeah that's really really interesting i never made that connection before um i as far as coffee goes coffee obviously is the the factor that guides him towards phil in the lobby of the lucky seven insurance company you know he kind of smells that coffee as phil's walking by and says something to him and and, you know it's one of the few things that dougie is uh focused on intently and follows intently and so i would argue that you know coffee serves for dougie jones what the map does for Hawk and for Truman, like, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's an element of guiding. Uh, that's interesting. I never thought about it. I mean, obviously coffee itself is a stimulant. Uh, and you know, as Sam Stanley tells us in firewalk with me, you know, caffeine's a drug. Um, and it certainly has, I mean, you know, obviously it, 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 it has that effect on, um, Dougie, when he first drinks it in the breakfast at breakfast with Sonny Jim, you know, really does something. It, it, it sort of awakens him for a moment. Um, and again, obviously coffee is just such a critical element of Twin Peaks. So I don't know how much meaning we want to assign to it other than, you know, Lynch loves coffee and coffee found its way into Twin Peaks. And but one of my favorite scenes in the return actually is when Frank, doesn't get his coffee and instead gets the green tea latte. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Take, he takes that long sip and you just see this smile come over his face. So th- the reason I point that out is because coffee's maybe not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. That's yeah. That's a that's a great that's a great uh, comment. Of course, caffeine. <laughs> you know, I think there's probably caffeine in that green tea latte. latte yeah, I'm so, sure. uh, so, um, what about cigarettes? I put this on our list and I don't know if we discussed it, but you know, obviously Diane is a smoker. I think Leo Johnson was a smoker. Um, and Gordon Cole, obviously misses smoking. He, he has that great scene where they're all outside smoking. Do cigarettes have an innate power any different than like the donuts or coffee do? I think cigarettes do kind of symbolize possibly um, 
uh, death. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking this out loud as I, as, you know, this is not something we talked about. I, and the reason why I say that is simply because uh, Donna says to Laura and Firewalk with me, if I had a nickel for every cigarette your mom smoked, I'd be dead. The idea that she's smoking way too much, um, Sarah Palmer is. And, you know, it's sort of a cliche and it's sort of a, it's sort of a, simplistic thing you know the bad guy smokes or you're if you're if you're going to the dark side you start to smoke a cigarette you know you're kind of willing to you know well attitudes have changed around cigarettes since twin peaks first aired and and the return aired and now of course but you know like i feel like audrey horn smoked in the in the pilot um you know bobby smoked obviously i I can't remember if uh, mike nelson did or not but it seemed like it was it was just something that these characters did as, as a uh, kind of a release. Uh, but in the return smoking is handled a little bit differently. And I guess that's why I thought it might be worth a couple minute discussion. Well, it is interesting. You're right. Because, um, you know, Gordon Cole's like, I don't smoke anymore, but then later he, he, you know, he really wants a cigarette and, um, uh, and then Diane has to sort of struggle to smoke when she's in the morgue. They are like, you know, you can't smoke in here. Um, <clears throat> it's sort of this, there's been a it's been um suppressed smoking has and diane pushes through she says i'm it's a morgue i'm gonna smoke and and sets herself apart from everyone else right by by doing that yeah and they all kind of give her a little look like um you know you're being selfish sorry john if i'm if i remember correctly her staying out in the lobby to smoke that cigarette is the same time that the coroner actually showed the wedding ring that said from Jamie E. So Diane, by doing that, actually missed a key critical piece of information that could have changed the entire show. That's right. Yeah, she is actually kind of um, – they ask her if she wants to come in, and she doesn't want to. Uh, she wants. She doesn't want to do it. Um, she doesn't want to be there at all. But um, you're right. If she had gone – then arguably she would have they would have had that piece of information much earlier maybe that information was designed you know whoever's setting these these larger plans in motion was for Diane to see it and um <clears throat> because of her indulgence in smoking she misses that opportunity and so they're just set you know that much further back in in the story or you know in, in where they want to achieve because Diane <clears throat> didn't see the ring till much much later that it's an interesting way of, of thinking about that well it makes cigarettes relevant at least <laughs> yeah, yeah there you go so we already talked about cooper's fbi pin a bit and i know you've written extensively on this completely changed my mind in your essays in the blue rose about the significance of this you know in in your mind has your attitude or thoughts about cooper's pin changed in the past year yes to some extent i'm still um I mean, let's just say, let's just, let's, so for people to understand where we're coming from, Cooper is wearing this FBI pin uh, in part two and in part three when he sees NATO in the, um, you know, call it the, the purple realm or whatever you want to call that place that he goes to. Um, uh, he's wearing that FBI lapel pin, that the same one. I think uh, Gordon is wearing one and so is Albert. Um, it's, it's a symbol of, of Cooper as an agent, a uh, law enforcement agent. Um, he, he is a function of the government, and he has a role to play. Uh, and, and when he passes through that uh, socket portal, uh, we talked about this earlier, the pin does not 
go with him. Uh, so when he is shows up in Las Vegas in the house, he no longer has that pin on him. It doesn't return to him until after the moment of completion in part 17, where he fades off into the darkness and emerges from the shadows with uh, Cole and Diane accompanying him. And he's then he's wearing the, the pin again. And, and, you know, on a very basic level, you can merely, you, you know, you can simply say uh, the pin represents an aspect of Cooper's identity as an agent, um, as this, um, as someone who has agency. And, um, uh, you, you know, there's a lot, uh, the, there's a, the FBI and law enforcement is fraught with the potential of corruption as well. Uh, and so, um, when Cooper is this purified form of Dougie, he does not have that on. And you could just, you could say, well, that's because he cannot be, he, first of all, he doesn't have agency at all. Uh, and he cannot represent this corruptible force. Uh, or, you know, he cannot take these actions that can be, uh, you know, I don't want to get too far afield here, but, you know, when you're doing something that you think is good, it may not be for the greater good. Um, you know, there's all kinds of ways of looking at you know, what, what powers do we give law enforcement? And we can see how easy that can be corrupted. And so, so it's, you know, I think Doug, uh, Dougie Cooper just cannot have that. It's impossible for him to have that on him. Um, just as you might argue, it's impossible for him to be carrying that key. That's why he loses it so quickly. Yeah, I was just saying, I mean, what do you think? I mean, it's a very, it's a complicated uh, uh, subject and it's worth exploring the, the symbolism of the pen, uh, why it's there and why it's not there. I, whether or not I can conclude, you know, really say for sure, uh, you know, why it shows up when it does and why it goes away when it does. I don't, I'm still struggling a little bit with that. Other than it's a reflection of the mind of Cooper at certain points in the narrative and the presence of this pure goodness uh, that is Dougie Cooper. Um, so uh, maybe we want to talk about that idea of Dougie Cooper and power objects. I, I think it's worth it, and it'll probably introduce us for the end game of, of this conversation. Um, but I, I think you know there are elements of, of Cooper's psyche that obviously respond to the environment, uh, it, not necessarily from the systemic point of law enforcement, but from his moralistic standpoint of who he is. And I'm thinking particularly of staring at the statue that has the gun out, you know, of the, I'm, I'm assuming it's a lawmaker or a peacemaker, some type of, of uh, law enforcement, uh, you know, case files. He reaches for the badges every time he sees them, they fascinate him. Um, you know, th this idea of uh, this innocence moving through the world, I'm thinking like when he's sitting in the, uh, the office for the detectives and he sees the American flag and you hear the music going and like all, all of those elements cause him to react and respond to his environment, but it's not because of adherence to a formalized system of law enforcement. And I guess this is where David Lynch differs from David Simon, who wrote The Wire, because he would probably argue that the, the system itself is so corrupt that nobody pure could have any agency that would have any kind of positive effect inside of that. Whereas in Twin Peaks The Return, we see that that's exactly that, that, that it's because he's pure that Cooper can kind of move through this ultimate corruption. I think Anthony Sinclair even calls the cops in Las Vegas worse than anyone else, right? I think he makes that that comment at some point. So 
Cooper comes out of that unscathed, essentially, but but it's because of his loyalty that comes before the system of law enforcement, I would argue. Yes, and I and I think maybe now, I, I, if you don't mind, Josh, maybe now's the time to talk about the fact that uh, Cooper as Dougie, this pure good being, he doesn't need any kind of power object, right? I mean, he he mm-hmm. they don't wouldn't work for him anyway. He is, um, you know, in a simple fight, he is an object of power. He radiates goodness, so he makes people better whomever he comes into contact with, he makes them better people. And, and, and so there's no need for an object. An object does no good because he's beyond that. Wouldn't you say? I would definitely say that. And I think it's a very strong thesis of Twin Peaks, The Return. I'm, I'm pretty sure that Mark and David had that baked into the DNA of what is the actual story we're telling here. Uh, well, that it's Cooper doesn't need anything to wake up. He, he ultimately can rely on what's inside of himself to to cure the overcome you know, the the challenge of this extreme negative force that's invaded his soul. I would say that's that's the ultimate story that's being told. I mean, would you disagree with that? No, I think I mean I think you're definitely on to something uh, uh, there. So we're going to come back to, to Dougie at the end, I think, and, and maybe even here in a moment. But let's move on to a different kind of object inside of, of the return, and that is the crystal ball that sits on Charlie's desk. Um, you have a fascinating point of view on this. Yeah, I don't think it's Charlie's object, even though it's on his desk. Um Charlie says it's a funny line. He says to Audrey, "I don't have a crystal ball." <laughs> he has a crystal ball right in front of him, and um, that's that's Audrey's object. I mean, Audrey has generated that uh, and put it there for whatever reason. It reflects her psyche. Maybe it's because she sees, uh, she views Charlie as someone who will have answers for her. And so she she wants that from him, and so she sees a crystal ball there, uh, uh, and Charlie doesn't see it at all. I mean, he of course the whole Audrey thing, in and of itself. Let's just you know focus on symbols and, and objects, but we should just say, you know, we all know the entire Audrey storyline is is very subjective and probably not in any way literal what we're watching isn't really happening that audrey's not standing in this old 1940s house you know and talking to this man who's supposedly her husband um obviously the ending throws all of that into question the ending of her 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 arc in in the return um you know there's certainly enough uh, evidence there to say that what we're seeing is artificial whether or not it's because of Cooper's mind or whether it's because of Audrey's mind or a combination of the two. Again, we can go on and on. Um, So that being said, um, if the world that Audrey exists within is really a reflection of her mind or an escape into some other realm for her psyche, um, it, it, you know, it is a reflection obviously of, of something deeper inside of her. And so I would say the crystal ball is Audrey's object and the need perhaps for Audrey to have answers because that whole scene is the need for Audrey to have answers and uh, she, she can't get them. 
Yeah, that's a the whole story is very existential. I think you know if you wanted to think of a character that lived inside of a snow globe, like saying elsewhere, mm, right? <laughs> you know, that, yeah, yeah. That, that, mm-hmm. that is her object, you know, and that's that's actually her entire journey. And the return is this waking up inside of this prison she's been locked inside of. It seems like it's a mental one, I would argue, but the idea of anyone having a crystal ball that has meaning i mean you have to know how to read a crystal ball it doesn't just tell you the answers right right but but you know i mean in in you know obviously in pop culture the idea of a crystal ball is that it'll give you access to information that is beyond your normal ability to get maybe like the map or like the log maybe audrey wishes she had something like that um, or someone who had access to something like that. She's desperate, obviously, Audrey is. And uh, not to read too much into it, but, um, uh, you know, and it could have been just a throwaway by Lynch. It's just a funny thing, you know, Charlie's saying, I don't have a crystal ball and he has one right in front of him. Um, but I, I think everything in those scenes, every, every part of the set uh, is deliberate. Uh, it was carefully constructed to tell us this encapsulated small story within a story of Audrey, who really does not interact with anyone else um, other than than Charlie. Uh, yes, she goes to the roadhouse, but even that is is suspect. So um, so it's it's I mean the Audrey thing. Well, just just such a fascinating element of the story, but uh, for today's purposes, the the crystal ball seems to me uh, Audrey's object. Yeah, I I will agree with that. And and just one note on something you just said there about you know it seems deliberately constructed. You know, I'm uh, I'm not a huge fan of the alter theory where the director is the ultimate uh, filter, and and no director invites that more than David Lynch. But you know, in, in my perspective, it doesn't matter whether it was intended it's there <laughs> and, and kind of as, as viewers, we have to deal with it on some level. So I always kind of assume that it was intended. And even if it wasn't, what does it mean to the overall, you know, story at the end of it? So you, your point is well-made. Yeah. There's a lot there. And actually, you know, this was something I thought, you know, I mentioned early on, Hey, you know, I have some other ideas for topics and maybe Audrey's story is itself something to discuss because um, again, I don't want to get too far afield right now, but you know, Audrey is certainly looking for answers and information. It's just, uh, it's just so funny how when Charlie's on the phone with Tina, I think it's Tina, right? That's who he calls. And, um, you know, we're Audrey in that scene. You know, we're wanting to know what he's finding out and, and we're, we're teased and taunted and, and, you know, and, and ultimately we never do. And, um, and, and you know, that's what that whole scene is about trying to get information and for audrey's sake really here i'm doing the other podcast now um <laughs> she she's relying on someone else uh and and she can't and she shouldn't she should rely on her her well and i shouldn't pass judgment but i think she's an obstacle we, we want her to have that answer right yeah she she uh, she can't find a way to um to get the information herself and she's trying We'll leave it for now. Um, next, the next object is money. Money in the return has has many different uses. You know, I, I would say the first one is Mr. C is a billionaire, and he has used his billions to dastardly purpose. Uh, I would argue, wouldn't you say? 
Uh, well, sure. I mean, he's created a, a basically a criminal empire, right? I think Tammy goes into some detail about you know what he's been able to accomplish um, ruthlessly you know, using this money. Um, obviously, he has you know a, a goal beyond just wealth and greed. He's, it's an avenue for him to something far more dangerous. Well, I would say it's supernatural. He, you know, he constructs the glass box and essentially corrupts whatever the function is that's happening here. I would argue it's it's a function of dreaming, you know. But whatever the function is of how Twin Peaks, the return is corrupted for for Cooper. Mister C is behind that, and the glass box is an enormous element of his of his dastardly plans. And he wouldn't have been able to do that without money, right? It's fascinating the idea of um, not so much greed, but uh, you know the commentary on. We talked a little bit about this in the politics, but we didn't get into this particular side of it. Um, is consumerism and capitalism, and one great topic we missed, I think, in politics was. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe we did talk about Norma and her franchising the double R, and uh, you know she. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the idea that she's happier when she's not trying to make more and more money and compromise her own, you know, ideas and beliefs to make that money, which is all Walter really wants to do. Um, Walter may be, you know, working from, uh, you know, you know, a, a good he wants to do good because he wants to you know, help her and he wants to, you know, make you know, people have access to her good stuff. But for Norma, she's sort of selling out and. Um, and she chooses ultimately not to. Um, that's a topic, you know, the idea of you know, money, obviously, you know, it's cliche, money isn't going to make you happy. And I think Norma kind of, that's her arc. Norma has a small arc in the returns, very small, but it's there. Is the idea that she's being tempted away from something, these core values, this community, herself. And ultimately, she makes a choice that is to, to, to not seek these riches but to um to stay put and that's when she becomes happy yeah it's all we can really talk about it <laughs> totally agree. you know it's actually super important especially given what the world's going through now like you know it, it, are we going to stay true that the purpose of corporations are to maximize value for shareholders or is there also a corporate civic duty to also do good in the world and make sure that they're cleaning up their communities and not doing damage to the environment. I think there's a much bigger conversation that could probably be placed in context of Mr. C versus Cooper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's all there. I mean, you're right. Again, I guess we're giving someone the, we're giving our audience a preview of a potential new podcast down the road, but you know, Dougie, Dougie's happy with Janie E and, and Sonny Jim and his, his job. Um, I, I, yeah, we should talk about this another time because he's content. I think that world alone, he doesn't need any more than that. Um, now, granted, you know, he was given what at four hundred thousand dollars or whatever, he just fell into his lap. So there's a money aspect there that's worth talking about. Does that solve their problems? 
that money? Will that create problems for them? All of that needs to be analyzed. 100% agree. So yeah, let's leave that component of it. There's another aspect of money I think that's worth talking about briefly is this idea of money being a harbinger of something very bad to come. And and there's two moments I think we picked out. One of them was the penny that uh, young Sarah Palmer, if you believe Mark Frost's book, picks up and kind of rubs the Lincoln head and then Lincoln descends like this demon of evil. (laughs) And the other one is Red's Dime. Yeah, there's a number of coins that show up uh, in uh, the return. Um, There's also the Indian head uh, nickel that that, uh, Hawk... Uh, you know, it, it find you know Hawk sees and it, it finds information. He finds information because of it. But, but yeah, these these coins are potentially talismans or power objects. Uh, Red's dime has some bizarre quality to it. Hard to know what exactly is happening there. I think you had a pretty good take on that, uh, right? I mean, you saw it as as sort of sending Richard down a path. Is that right? Yeah, I think, you know, that that element of that scene where the dime comes out in Richard's mouth and he's made to look completely foolish, like, you know, he he was dressed down before he was called a kid. None of that truly set him off until he was made foolish through magic. And in fact, you know, driving down the road, he's like, he calls him the stupid magic MF, you know, he's smacking on the wheel, which I think is hilarious, by the way. But that set him off on a path that essentially killed that little boy. And drove him out of Twin Peaks. So that dime basically ruined all of Mr. C's plans. Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly, uh, well, I mean, you could certainly you know, trace it back to that moment. But I mean, the, the dime obviously is a strange object and it, uh, it has some, um, it does something, you know, and that's one great way of looking at it, of sending him down the path or just, yeah, just unsettling Richard to the point where he, he can't, uh, he can't stay on the path he'd hoped to be on, which was a terrible path, but I mean, you know, he, it throws him off. And I think the same could be said of the penny. Uh, The penny is really interesting because Lynch obviously, you know, focuses on the penny. We see a close up of that penny in the ground and uh, she, the girl picks it up and the boy says, she says, it's heads up. It's going to be good luck. And the boy says, I hope it does bring you good luck. Well, you know, her luck's only going to be bad <laughs> after this moment. And so there's an irony there. There's, you know, do we want to assign too much meaning to the fact that she picked up the penny? Was the penny placed there so that um, the frog moth, when it hatched, would be able to, you know, f- know where to hone in on someone who h- held that penny? Because, I mean, why did it choose her over everyone else? Um, well, she's the one who picked up the penny. I would arg- make an argument that the penny brought her bad luck. And obviously, it's right after she picks up the penny that the woodsman descends from the air. Um, and of course, it's worth just sort of noting outside the narrative that um, Robert Broski, who plays that woodsman, um, has a career of, of uh, doing Lincoln impersonations. He looks like Abraham Lincoln and uh, has done that. Uh, and so we see the Lincoln image on the penny and then the next thing we see is this sort of uh, Lincoln looking figure appear I, I, I somehow think that maybe Lynch saw that as kind of a unique opportunity to, to make that connection um, I don't think he was making any you know deliberate you know, Lincoln <laughs> you know Lincoln represents this or that but that the penny itself 
um, just had that similarity there. And so, but I think the penny, I really do believe that the penny was bad luck for her. And that when she picked, when she picked it up, it marked her as a victim and, uh, and it allowed that, uh, that creature to find her. So side note here, weren't there multiple frog moths that landed? I feel like there was a scene where they showed frog moths landing all over that desert. And then we kind of hone in on the one that goes to her. I kind of always assumed that all those characters got their own frog moss. Wow, that's interesting. I've never thought of that actually, I, because um, it's it's. I think it's vague. I don't think it's it's at all. I don't we. I don't think we see a, the, any others landing. We don't. We don't. We, you know, we see potentially others um, drifting out of that goo. Uh, but uh, Con- that's so complex that whole scene. We'll have to mark that for when we talk about part eight. Yeah, I think um, for me, only one made it, or made it through the eleven years. You know that it had to incubate, um, and so uh, I, I don't. You know, I don't know what happened to the others. Um, uh, you know, yeah, that's something to talk about another time. But um, as far as right now, I just I've always considered there just to be the one, only one, got onto Earth and and in, infected the girl, the one particular girl. So, so let's move on. We have a few more power objects to discuss. Um, Mr. C's Ace of Spades card is a is a great one to talk about. Yeah, I mean that sort of encapsulates what he wants, right? I mean that's that's the thing that he 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 doesn't need anything he wants and he wants that and I think it haunts him. He carries that thing around with him. Obviously when you see the close up of it, he's he's scribbled on it to to make it look like um experiment and and it looks like it's either been thumbtacked uh, you know a hundred times to a wall or he has stabbed at it because it's all kind of torn up and punctured. And so um uh, you know, I just think that that symbolizes that drive in him, that greed, that want for power, and he carries this object around with him uh, to symbolize, you know, to encapsulate, make physical that, um, you know, that greed for that power. Yeah, I think I, I always pictured him kind of holding it in his hand and rubbing his thumbnail over and over and over, just staring at that symbol. Um, and like what, there's a great phrase in Moby Dick where he said something about, I would, I would stab the sun if it offended me or something like that. You know, I just picture like that level of, of maniacal attention on the, the symbol in front of him and to the point where it becomes obsessive. And I think any villain that's given something to obsess on, whatever that object is, is going to become fascinating. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you might, you, you know, it makes you think, you know, he says, I don't need anything I, I want, but I wonder if Mr. C does need to have that card with him. I mean, you know, that is a weakness in a way. Um, we see uh, the opposite of Mr. C is Dougie. He doesn't need, doesn't need that key. The key disappears. He doesn't need that pin. But, um, you know, and although we never see the Ace of Spades again, we know he's still got it with him. He's got it in his jacket. And so uh, he it's almost like he needs it as a reminder or uh, it, it may represent a weakness in him uh, that he has to, you know, embody it in this uh, in this just sort of um, flimsy object. 
Agreed. And this is going to be another idea for a show that we should do is, you know, what, what is it that Mr. C wants? That's a huge conversation, uh, realizing it. You know, I think this is where we're going to get into Mark Frost's final dossier and start to talk about the difference between Judy and Bob and what does Bob want and what happens when, if they would get together and all that great stuff. Uh, but for now, I think let's just leave it at a power object with Mr. C uh, as, as for what he wants, symbolic of what he wants. Um, you know, I, I, I would also lump in his use of technology into that as well. He's got some really creepy, kooky technology that he uses to kind of subvert things. But I feel like it's all inside that same circle. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a reflection, again, of Gordon Cole in a way is that, um, you know, Gordon Cole needs something mechanical. And I think um, um, Mr. C needs these objects. He's, you know, he's got the app on his phone that turns off tracking devices and he's got you know, some weird communication device that he attaches to his computer. It, it, these are sort of the dark uh, electronic objects, the opposites of Gordon Cole's objects. You know, they, they sort of they reflect one another. Yeah, and it actually reminds me of, you know, Darth Vader. So Darth Vader needs the mechanical breathing apparatus. He needs those uh, elements of his suit to keep him alive. He's half a man. You know, he's not like Obi-Wan Kenobi or Luke who can stand on their own. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, uh, there's there's a lot of tech that's in, that, that surrounds uh, Mr. C. Um, you might not think so, but, you know, the, the glass box in and of itself is something that he is associated with. And so that's all tech. And everything about that is wires and, you know, um, cameras and lights and so... Yeah, as uh, positive as David is to embrace new technologies, I feel like the way that it's approached in season three is trepidatious. Like there's a lot of negatives surrounding the technology in the return, don't you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think technology is not something to rely on. I think it 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 can um, in Twin Peaks that it um, you know it it it's not reliable um, and. Um, you know, Mr. C is trying to impose or access uh, these realms through a technological uh, avenue, and um, those realms are not um, easily accessed or properly accessed through that. You know, obviously, we know it takes some other kind of uh, frame of mind in order to. Um, I don't know if access is the right word, but to, to become in tune, to, to, to sync up with those other worlds. Yeah, I like that. I just want to point out the irony here of someone like Lucy Brennan, who has obviously a, the worst grasp of technology in the return, is the one that actually defeats Mr. C. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, that, you know what? That, uh, isn't that interesting? That really is. She, she is sort of dumbfounded by technology, and they make a point of that. You know, she's trying to, she's confused about the thermostat, and she doesn't understand cell phones. And all of that just sort of clouds, would, would potentially cloud her mind, uh, arguably. And, um, and because she doesn't under, you could argue that because she doesn't understand it, she's the perfect vessel really to position in that, in that moment to defeat Mr. C. Right. Well, in fact, doesn't she say after she shoots him, I finally understand cell phones now. <laughs> yeah. It's after that. It's almost as if, you know, once the evil's defeated, she can embrace some technology at that point. It's like, okay, now that's, that's so good. Yeah. 
that, you know, that, you know, that, there's something there. I don't, you know, I think we just, we're, we're, we're discovering something as we talk about this. The idea of how technology is, um, is represented in the return and, you know, typically it is more of, um, um, I don't want to say a hazard, but um, it's a barrier rather than, um, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't give you access the way you would hope. And maybe Cole is is trapped himself. He can't quite get past that because he's relying on technology too. I think of your phrasing about guns in the last episode where you said these are powerful objects, like treat them with respect. You know, they can, they can do a lot of damage and technology seems to be the same in the same category. That yeah. You think. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's something I'm just thinking about now. So I'd want to, I'd want to go back and look at, you know, some of these um, places where technology shows up and, um, you know, does it really benefit anyone? It's it, because obviously there's something to be said about um, Lucy being so confused by it. Although Andy's not. Andy, you know, says, I don't know why this keeps happening to you. I don't know what's wrong. You don't understand it. And Frank Truman, you know, he's a he's certainly a good, good person and he has no problem with it. That, I mean, we could be reading too much into it, but um, there is some. Yeah, there's something there. It's there. Yeah. So let's let's move into the end game of the conversation, specifically focused on three symbols or three talismans. Two of them are going to kind of be in the same circle, and that is Dr. Amp's golden shovels and his cosmic flashlight, more so the golden shovels. And this is going to be a great segue, I think. So what do you think of when someone mentions Dr. Amp's golden shovels? So, you know, the gold shovels are great because they are talismans and they are power objects. And um, you would think that, uh, well, I mean, you, Dr. Amp presents them as these power objects. But the fact is, he doesn't really believe that. He's just, it's a scam. I mean, he's just trying to make money and he's selling this sort of snake oil, this idea that, hey, we, we know he just got these shovels and spray painted them. We've seen it. And now he's, 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 he's set, you know, um, he's representing them as something more than what they really are. And he's saying they'll change your life. And so, um, you know, we know that they're not power objects. They're not talismans. They're just junk. And yet uh, Nadine doesn't see it that way. Nadine um, takes this. Is, this really gets back to your story of the rock uh, um, that you told earlier. Nadine imbues the shovel with power. She gives it power. And, um, you know, it's just something for her to focus on. And because she does that, her life gets better. You could argue that her life gets better. And really, ultimately, you know, uh, Dr. Jacoby, he, he's surprised when he encounters Nadine and sees that she's, you know, put the shovel in her window. And, and he sort of awakens at that moment that something's happening here. And it really gets beyond the object itself. The object is really meaningless. Um, perhaps the object is ultimately a crutch for people. All these objects could be crutches and that they are what we need. We need to focus on something outside of ourselves so that we can find ourselves. Um, the objects ultimately aren't really necessary. Uh, it's what's inside us that is. And I think that's what happens with the golden shovel there. How do you see that? 
I think you're spot on there. And I, I always viewed this as a commentary on religion. You know, that idea of needing something outside oneself, whether it's a single symbol like a cross or a golden shovel, or it's an entire, you know, complex array of metaphors and rituals and books and, you know, centuries and centuries of tradition. That idea that it becomes just a mirror to reflect the, the best and sometimes the worst parts of yourself back at you. And then that's the element that you use to, to measure your own change. I think it's a very powerful statement um, and probably more so than any other element, including the log, including the map. I think it's a very straightforward on the nose uh, representation of how true change can come about just from attention and intention. Yeah. And I think if we, you know, if we were to go back through all the objects we've talked about, um, the great Northern key and Briggs's puzzle tube and, um, you know, uh, Cooper's FBI pin and all of these, certainly Charlie's crystal ball, which we're assigned to Audrey. All of those objects are really powerless. They have no power. There's nothing to them. We've, we've called them power objects because the characters think of them that way. Uh, and, um, ultimately, as I said before, they're, they're really just sort of crutches. Um, uh, the power comes from inside each character and if they need that crutch, they have that crutch. But it, you know, ultimately, uh, as Dougie kind of shows, you don't need an object. You don't need a power object to achieve what you need to achieve. It's all inside you. Yeah, it's, it's very well put. It brings us to our final object of power in Twin Peaks. And prob- Which I bet there's a lot of people out there who are probably stamping their feet and saying, <laughs> why have you not talked about this? The most obvious power object in the entire story. You guys forget it? <laughs> no, we put it at the end because it's the most important and we'll have we zero put it answers about it. So, you know, we, we have our thoughts, but this would obviously be the owl cave ring. This, above any other object in Twin Peaks, symbolizes... Well, what does it symbolize? You tell me. Well, it's both the, the the strongest, most powerful object in the entire narrative and also the most meaningless mm. object inside the narrative, right? I mean, it gets to what we were talking about just a moment ago. Um, we have to go back to Firewalk Me and talk about how, you know, this ring, um, if you put it on, you're probably dooming yourself to, you know, uh, torturous uh afterlife and uh it's wielded by evil entities it's a it's a an object that that uh essentially curses you um and so that's what it is and that's what it is in the return for the most part we we see it function that way um and you can't really deny the fact that it is a fundamental part of the narrative you need that ring to move characters from one world to another it you know it it um it's an important plot point. Uh, and yet we also know that from Firewalk with me, uh, through what happens with Laura, is that the ring um, doesn't really have the power. You, you know, she she sort of um, gives it the power she wants it to have. She, she says that it's not going to doom me. I'm going to take it and I'm going to put it on. And I don't fear it anymore because, as we just said, you know, Everything that happens comes from inside you. And so Laura knows she is uh, a good person when she puts the ring on. And so the ring has no power at all over her. I mean, you could argue, yeah, it's what brings her to the red room at the end of Firewalk with me, but she sees her angel at the end of Firewalk with me. I mean, it, it, there's no 
bad thing really that happens when she puts it on. Yeah, I, I think it's clear at the fi- at the end of Firewalk with me that Laura now has dominion over that environment. That that's how I always took it. Like you, you found you find your um, some someone's making you drink poison, but suddenly it starts to nourish you. <laughs> I guess you know it's, it's the image, and of course the one that it makes me think of is Dorothy in, in the Wizard of Oz. She takes the witch's shoes, puts them on, uh, obviously a symbol of of evil puts them on and yet that's also the element that allows her to escape from oz and return home right that's and that's a great uh, uh parallel because obviously we know that lynch you know one of his favorite films is wizard of oz he's referenced it um overtly in wild at heart he he references it but it's referenced um in in a lot of other plays yeah mulholland drive i think yeah yeah so, yeah i mean it's, it's there um and so anyway um you know, we talk about the ring inside the narrative of uh, just the return. Um, you know, it, it bounces around from character to character, um, but it's hard to say for sure, you know, uh, who's positioning the ring and, and, and ultimately where the ring ends up. It, it's clear that there's a connection between how the mechanics of characters end up in the Red Room with this ring, at least in the return, wouldn't you say? Well, uh, Let's so let's just you know bring it back to what the whole idea of what we were talking about with the ring is that um, it's um, you know it's presented to us as this very powerful object, but really is it? Yeah, I mean it, it's something uh, it, it's something to to look at, and um, you know the ring in many ways um, can be. Uh, it's a very subjective, I think, object. Uh, as much as it's presented as this objective, you know, obviously the first thing you think of when you think of a power ring is Lord of the Rings. And in that in that world, that ring truly is this evil thing that has its own agency and wants to survive and is, you know, is finding ways to keep itself alive. Um, and uh, it's very hard to defeat it. I don't think even though the ring in uh, Twin Peaks, uh, the return is sort of presented that way. Um, ultimately, as we've said with all these objects, they don't really have the power that they might seem to have. And, um, you know, at the very end, when we see the ring on um, Mr. C, uh, you know, is it really even there? Or is this just something that Cooper's carrying in his mind with him? Like, again, he's relying on an object as a crutch. Um, and uh, until he can kind of get past that, he really is still somewhat lost. Yeah, I think that's that's valid. And, you know, my, my point of view is that from Firewalk with me up to the end of the return is all the same kind of nightmare. Uh, and the idea that the ring itself was synthesized like the key, like Freddie's green glove as an element of, of the dream that was, you know, could be applied in multiple different ways. Um, I think that that is valid. I think it stands for me. I'm, I'm a fan of that as a concept. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the most complicated object to talk about. And in some ways, it's the most simple object to talk about, right? I mean, it has a very simple function. We see that it's evil, but then really Laura proves to us that no matter how much um, power we think something may have over us, um, we're the ones who are ultimately giving it that power and we can take it away too. 
Well, it feels like that's as as we wrap up into kind of a final thought. You know that that idea of symbols only having the power that we give them agency for. I mean, you think of the ultimate evil symbol, the swastika. Uh, you know, but that's been around for thousands of years. It was, you know, it was a, a symbol of divinity before it was corrupted, and. You know, we, we've now essentially still uh, imbued that with power uh, from a negative perspective. It just shows you the power that these symbols can take on and carry through decade after decade. And, and the power is psychological. They have It has no power, right? I mean, the symbol itself has no power, but but we give it that power. I think that is super important. Uh, and, you know, for, for me, you know, back to our, our point about Dougie, the, he walks through this world, doesn't need a talisman, doesn't need a power object. He, he just acts from the simplest part of his nature. It creates this umbrella of protection. There are elements that guide him that he's sensitive enough to walk towards and move towards, like the coffee, the cherry pie, etc. And it feels like at the end of Part 18, everything that had been constructed from Season 1 all the way up through with all of these different powerful objects and elements and talismans you know it, it was essentially deconstructed by that point to say that it's it's your purest nature inside you that is is what ultimately will save you yes i would definitely agree i love that so much it's it's the reason i continue to come back and watch twin peaks the return because to me that is as timeless a story as the crucifixion as you know Julius Caesar as a, you know, it, it is a, a Shakespearean level story, in my opinion, when you look at it from that lens. Uh, it is certainly um, a bottomless well. I think we've talked about that before. That you, no matter how many times you watch it, you get something new from it. And that's, you know, what makes it so, so important. Yeah, important enough that we started a podcast on it. <laughs> right, and as we, so, uh, yeah, and as we record it, we come up with like five new ideas and... <laughs> I think it's just testament to how rich the material is. I mean, I, I hope people who listen to this are as inspired as we are. Uh, that it's, you know, if you're writing off Twin Peaks to return after watching it once and being frustrated, I understand that. But I would also warn you that you're walking away from poss- possibly the most richest artistic experience you could have. Well, that, that's a fascinating way maybe to, to conclude this um, uh, podcast with this idea is that um, and maybe we're guilty ourselves. Maybe we're giving it too much power. We're talking about giving something power. Um, but you know, it, it, it sort of reflects, um, I think, I think the return reflects, or, you know, you bring to it, we talked about this with baggage uh, in the first, uh, podcast and the people who've only watched it once who maybe didn't want to open themselves or couldn't open themselves or for whatever reason, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, cast blame or anything but there is a potential there and it really has to do with the viewer and not with the art um and so um um i think if you if you come at it from the right point of view um it um it can really speak to you I think it's just testament to how rich the material is. I mean, I, I hope people who listen to this are as inspired as we are. Uh, 
uh, that it's, you know, if you're writing off Twin Peaks to return after watching it once and being frustrated, I understand that. But I would also warn you that you're walking away from possibly the most richest artistic experience you could have.